Thanks for tuning into the Know and Do podcast. My name is Justin Barton. Before jumping into this conversation with a man who is a youth leader of mine over 25 years ago, I just want to express how important it has been and is to me to do these long-form conversations with good people who have experienced growth and obtained wisdom throughout their lives. I recently heard a quote whose origin I did not catch. It says, The wise man learns from someone else's mistakes. The smart man learns from his own, and the fool never learns. I guess I've spent enough time in the fool's category in my life and am trying to improve on the smart person's category. But I also think it important to strive to develop wisdom by talking to real people with real experiences, both positive and painful. That is what the Know and Do podcast is all about. I have several more of these conversations lined up, but I'm always looking for more people with life lessons and wisdom learned and earned that they are willing to share with me and the listening audience of Know and Do. My ideal conversation would be with someone who is nearer to the end of his or her life than the beginning and has a story to tell and is willing to share the good and the not so good so that others can learn from their experiences. These conversations are also hoped to be kind of a legacy where the person involved can impart some of their more important thoughts and philosophies and lessons learned, along with some experiences that may have not yet been heard by their children, grandchildren, and on down the line for generations to come. If you know anyone that fits this description and who would be willing to have a recorded conversation with me, please email me at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com and let me know. We can then start the process of getting it set up. Also, if you find the Know and Do podcast to be of value to you, please share it with your friends and family. Please subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please rate and review us on that same service. You may also follow Know and Do on Facebook. Just search Know and Do and like us and leave a note to let us know what you like most or what you would love to hear in the future episodes. Now, on to the conversation with Jim Lashemina. In this conversation, we will range over his life and experiences, starting out in Glendale, California, and following him and his family as they persevere and endure through ups and downs, striving to recognize that by the end of the day, we will all be a better person because of these experiences we are going through. I think there are some very important life lessons addressed in this conversation. Enjoy. Jim, thank you for being willing to sit down with me and having this conversation. Happy to do it. So tell me a little bit about who you are today, what you do, and kind of your family situation today. Sure. Yeah. Well, my wife Michelle and I got married in 1970. We have five children. Jamie is our oldest. He's a professor at BYU, Provo. Uh, Chris is our second oldest and he is a computer guy and he worked he moved back to Arizona a few years ago and he works for Maricopa Community Colleges in the computer area. Uh, our daughter Lissa lived in Texas and then in Highland, Utah but moved back to Arizona in August and moved out to Queen Creek. It's 40 minutes away but it's better than 11 hours. And then Jeff uh, is in our ward. He's a civil engineer, works for Solar Project as a manager. 
And then Noel, our daughter, originally went back to Washington, D.C. and worked for Congressman Jeff Flake and stayed. She's back there 12, 13, 14 years now and got married while she was back there and no chance of her coming back this way, I guess. She has her husband uh, does research on, on candidates in the, for the Republican Party around the country and mm. that's a good place for them, them to be. So the result of those kids, we now have 26 grandkids, 17 in Arizona, so spend a lot of our time going to football games, basketball games, concerts with grandkids, which we like. I don't know what we do if the other two move back with it, you know, with another nine grandkids, but uh, we'd make a way to do it. I retired from uh, a bank, community bank here, Gateway Bank, in March of 2016. In April, Michelle and I went on a mission for our church, back to the New Hampshire Manchester mission, spent our time and were signed in a little town called Machias, Maine for 18 months. Got home April of 2017. Uh, Michelle had a six page single space list of things for me to do. <laughs> I finished that after eight months and then I got a call from Gateway Bank again. So interested in coming back part time. And so last July, I'm back working at the bank. That's great. So how old are you? Well, in a month I'll be 73. So you're you're just a young guy. Yeah, young. <laughs> what does your retirement position at the bank look like? How often are you there? What types of things are you doing? Yeah, you know, when I left, I was senior vice president. Of, you know, really business development. When I came back, I'm I'm vice president of business uh, business development and out drumming up business. You know, we're a business bank. We do commercial loans for anyone that needs a loan. We do a couple personal things like home equity lines of credit and residential construction loans and lot loans, but I'm out and around drumming a business. I say I'm in the bank Tuesday and Wednesday, but not everybody wants to meet on Tuesday and Wednesday. So there's a Monday, there's a Thursday, there's a Friday, mm-hmm. you know, that type of thing. And also before we came home from mission, I got a call from a friend of mine saying he had a, was, a, was involved with a uh, foundation that provides grants for type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And where that money came from, the owner had diabetes since he was 10, passed away, and there were, he was the first of three members of the directors of the, the foundation, and asked me if I was willing to do that now that he was gone. So I spent the last couple of years doing that too, which so has been great. So you're on the board of that? Uh, yeah, there's a, three directors. Were you interested in that because of personal experience with diabetes, or was it more connections of people? Yeah, that, more, uh, more connections, but I really developed an interest, as you see, like uh, Tom Beetson was his name, uh, developed type 1 diabetes at age 10. Then you see these kids that are 4, 5, 6, and 7. You know, I mean, I was more familiar with, with uh, type 2 diabetes. You know, watch what you eat and, and exercise. You know, that's been very interesting. And uh, he, he had an interest in uh, Jocelyn Diabetes Foundation back in Boston. Every year they have a big medalist convention where they give a medal and a big program for those that have had diabetes for 25 years, 50 years, even some at 75 years. And so that takes place every May. So we're heading back there, you know, with these two directors and their wives and be at that thing. And while we're at it, we'll take a little extra time and tour back to Maine and go see our old Machias branch and some of those people we came to love. Very neat. So what's the name of the organization that you're it's the board Tom, of? It's Thomas Beetson Foundation. Beetson, B-E-E-T-S-O-N? B-E-A-T-S-O-N. We provided a couple of things this year to uh, the University of Arizona and City Hope out of California. 
You know? So you're funding other organizations, that, basically, that not necessarily individuals. do research on type oh. 1 diabetes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's really cool to know. How has that relationship changed your perspective on diseases or illness and with people? Well, you know, you look, for me, I look at myself and, you know, knock on wood, all of our kids and grandkids seem to be physically in pretty good shape and mentally in pretty good shape, and you say... You know, just a slight change in anything when you were born or along the way, an accident, whatever it might be, can really change your life. And so these people try as hard as they can and make uh, successful lives in almost every case. But it has a great (coughs) effect, especially if they're young, on the parents and the family members. You know, it's just not a one-person thing. It's When you get type 1 diabetes, it's a a family thing, you know. And uh, for Tom Beetson, he was lucky to have a great mom when he got that and and they didn't know much about type 1 diabetes at the time and the equipment and all the things that go with it now is much different you know then than it is that is now right i've i've seen a couple of young kids with you know the pumps that they carry around all the time and insulin pumps and stuff like that so let's let's kind of jump back in time okay tell me about where you come from your parents your family extended family that you recall of people who had great influences over you as a Yeah, no, I was born in Glendale, California, you know, kind of between Burbank and, and Los Angeles. My dad was a commercial artist, got an older sister, four years older, and then two younger brothers. My older sister passed away when we were in the mission field. Hmm. She had a stroke and been in a home for almost five years, and so she passed away. My older, younger brother passed away about 15 years ago of cancer. He was 43, he was having trouble with his stomach, and went into the doctor, and the doctor said, hey, take this medication for a few weeks and come back, and he never went back. By the time that uh, he did, he had the size of a soccer ball, cancer gone in his stomach, and, and passed away. And so, mm-hmm. You know, he was the older of the younger brothers, and another younger brother that's 14 months younger than my other brother. He's uh, played basketball uh, in college, Got a couple of master's degrees and mm. went from California a few years ago up to Highland, Utah as the finance director up there. And mm. he's got three kids that are all up there too. And so my dad was a my dad was a commercial artist, had his own business, drove to LA every morning. You know, what is cover. a commercial artist? Well, I can give you an example. One mm. day he calls me out, he had a, a dark room and all the stuff out in his house too, in our home. He called me out and said, Jim there's this little tool here, I need you to be a model. It's a tool for clipping nose hairs. And I said, what? He says, yeah, hold this up here and do that and do that. So for years in magazines where you see things advertised, there was my nose and mouth with my hand up there clipping nose hairs. I'd be out there and he'd have guns. He was doing a job for somebody who sold guns or tires. I always have tires there and he'd have it all set up with the lighting right and and he got paid for them advertising those things in, in magazines or whatever the advertisement might be. Huh. He'd go in his dark room and he had all the developing fluid and stuff and the pictures and hang them up and let them drip dry. I'm sure it's a lot different now, but yeah, yeah. that's what he was doing. He got on his own for all those years. Because of the traffic in L.A., he used to leave a little later, about 9 in the morning, and come home a little bit later, 6.30 or 7 at night, to miss the traffic. He was a basketball player. That's where I kind of developed my love of basketball. I grew up in a little house in Burbank, and I remember 
he made a basketball standard out of wood and put it on front of the garage. It was a one-car garage. And around the side of the house, in a weedy area, was another basketball standard that existed. And so at a young age, if there was a car in the garage, I'd shoot the front basket, dribble around the side, and shoot at the back basket, so it was like full court, right? <laughs> if he was at work and the car was gone, I'd dribble through the garage because there was a door in the back, you know, and shoot in the back, so I was playing full court. You know, but I, that's one of the youngest memories I had was going down to Hoover High School because he played kind of semi-pro basketball in leagues and watch him play. I mean, I was three, four, five, mm. crawling up on these bleachers, but I kind of remember those basketball games and I was around it so much, maybe that's where I like to play. Tell me a little bit about your mom. My mom, you know, beautiful, beautiful lady. Her family joined the church in Brookville, Pennsylvania, her and her mom. She was 13. They had seven kids. They moved uh, almost like the Beverly Hillbillies, if you ever remember mm. that. So they moved in an old truck with all their, all their belongings to Glendale or California. And the first thing he did, they pulled in, they needed gas, they pulled into a gas station one night, and here was a, a man, I don't know how old he was, but sweeping things up later at night. And my grandfather that I never met just said, hey, you interested in selling this place? And he said, well, sure, how much? Oh, $600. That was about all he had. He gave him $600. He says, come, I'll be back tomorrow. I came back tomorrow, and here was an older man saying, what can I help you with? Well, I bought this yesterday. What? So the guy that was working there pushed the room, wasn't the owner. He took the money and never heard from him again. Uh. Anyway, I don't know how many years later, they were poor as could be. It wasn't very long. They found my grandfather under a bridge dead. Uh. He apparently killed himself, and mm. so my mom had a hard time. In fact, it was years later that my mother caught up with her younger sister, the youngest of them all. You know, my grandmother couldn't take care of her, and there was a family that wanted her, adopted her, mm -hmm. and had a great life, and so my mom grew up very, very poor, but she again joined the church, really wasn't active growing up. You know, he was my dad, he'd come to church, and I don't remember him holding a church calling, except I do remember on our big dining room table, there were charts from each of the wards in our stake. Because he was a, a commercial artist and good at drawing and stuff, there was percentages for home teaching, sacrament and attendance. I remember blues and reds and blacks, so he must have been called to some kind of a clerk on the hmm. stake level to fill out these and make these reports and, and print them up every week so they had them. A lot different than computers today. That You wouldn't see that happen. But Anyway, my mom, my mom stayed home. She worked for my dad doing all the billing and stuff for the commercial artist business for years and years and years. Always there, all the time. I mean, I played games from third grade on, you know, flag football and base softball and basketball. She was always there and everything. Mm. So that was great. So what effect did your grandfather's untimely death that probably nobody was anticipating, what kind of effect did that have on his children and radiating out? Yeah, again, my, my mom had joined the church in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, my Uncle Alex, Uncle Gene, they weren't members of the church. And it was the early 40s, they were in World War II and in the Air Force and I think the, the Navy. And I met them a few times, really not very often. My Aunt Pat, you know, they lived down by the, the beach and they were divorced. I got to know the cousins there a little bit. A couple of girls were really nice and the other aunt were good good people. but weren't uh, 
someone I got a chance to meet very often. We're around for family reunions and that type of thing. We just went down to the beach, got a chance to meet him and see him on a regular basis in the summertime normally. So what about your father's family? Yeah, my grandfather, Bill Shemino, William Wallace, lived up the street and around the corner from us in our church ward growing up. He was uh, an active member of the church. Him and his mom, Alice Woodhouse, Lashemanah, good people. I saw a lot of them because they're in the ward. And he'd come down to our house every couple of weeks. And his son, my father, gave him a haircut. He was in real estate. And about the time I really got to know him, he was a, you know, worked for a funeral home, you know, funeral director. So I think he did a number of things growing up. But they left Utah. My father was young, moved to, to Glendale, California. You know, at the time, there was just the one ward, Glendale West Ward there and we were all part of it good friends good people got to know that was kind of our life for a long time which of your extended family relatives had the greatest effect on your life and why probably my grandparents and my uncle ken my dad had four brothers one died at 17 the oldest one but uh, my dad's name was glenn glendon there was uncle keith uh, who was a dentist in fact his son greg my cousin lives out here in higley know him really well. We're in the MTC at the same time, actually. Oh. So Uncle Ken had a had a son, Wayne, that was my age. We went to high school together. He's passed away a number of years ago, but he was a good influence. He was a funny guy, just a great guy. They all, we all lived on the same street, blocks down from each other, so we're all in the same ward and, and uh, had some cousins that were younger, and we hung out together and had a, a good time like you'd like to see families be together. Um, you know, a lot different on my father's side than it was on my, my mother's side. My cousin Greg and Steve went on missions. You know, they were a little younger than me, but today, good kids, good families, do good things. What experiences did you have as a youth that you think had a great effect on what you have become as an yeah. adult? The Glenda West Ward was pretty amazing. There were just some dynamic people there. You know, our bishop was was Reed Collister. You probably know Doug Collister and Tad Collister. Yeah, Tad's yeah. currently the uh, general Sunday school president of the church and was in the, a member of the presidency of the 70. Those kind of people. Lance Wickman uh, was a bishop who, I think he's emeritus now, but a general authority also, and is still uh, the attorney for the church, I think, works for the offices there. And those are all good people, good, good kids in there. I think it was probably that church group our age and older that we watched that were probably as, as great an example church-wise as anything else that was around us. So a, a significant portion of the listening audience to the Know and Do podcast are not LDS or are not affiliated very closely with the church. You know, we've talked a lot about wards and MTC, Missionary Training Center, wards being local congregations, branches being smaller local congregations, but uh, what are some lessons that you learned as a youth that maybe helped in things that aren't directly related to the church, but, uh, you know, sure. definitely could have sprung out of that? No, again, I think it, has, it did spring out of that. Just watching these people, I mean, uh, here was Lance Wickman, for instance, four or five years older, valedictorian of high school, was really overweight, just decided to lose weight and became a, a Marine. You know, and a, and a leader in, in the Army, then went to uh, Cal Berkeley and then to Stanford Law School. Reed Collister and all his family became attorneys, except one guy that was kind of a black sheep. He was an ophthalmologist, Dave <laughs> Collister. 
they all had work ethic, you know. Our bishopric was made up of an, a lawyer, a dentist, and a doctor. Poor old Dr. Slight there, he was uh, delivering babies all the time, and he'd sit up on the stand as, as young men. We thought it was funny, he'd just be falling asleep, you know. Now, as you're older, you realize how busy this guy was. Right. But the work ethic, start a job and finish it, that, that kind of felt like everybody in that ward. It was just kind of that way. At the time, there was just no other wards in Glendale. That's, that was your life, and that was great examples to me as a young man on working hard and trying to achieve something worthwhile. Yeah. So, Jim, you were one of my youth leaders when I was between 12 and 18 yeah, years old. Um, one of the lessons that I re- recall most that you taught us as, as youth was a time that you shared where you and a friend decided to go smoke a cigarette somewhere. Oh, yes. From that. Do you mind sharing that uh, again? Because it's really foggy in my memory, no, but I I'll really give, enjoyed it. I'll give you a couple things. You're exactly yeah. right. So I'm, I'm probably seven years old. Uh, I go out in front. must have been summertime, no school. And there was an old 56, 57 Cadillac in front visiting the people next door. And I look in the front seat. And there's a box, I don't see a package, a box of cigarettes, Chesterfield 8s, I think they were called, <laughs> where you pulled them out, and a cigarette lighter. And so I grabbed those things and went in the backyard, quite a backyard back in there. So I'm, I'm lighting one of these cigarettes up and smoking it, uh, you know, as I thought it was supposed to be smoked, I guess. Didn't swallow any smoke, just put it, puff it out, and my mom came back, and as a wise woman, she didn't say, what in the heck are you? She said, oh, you're not doing this right. Let me show you how it ought to be done. <laughs> okay, now let's light up a, a new one here. Light up now. Now you can kind of suck this in so it gets down into your lungs. So I, no, that's not, keep trying. Did Oh, man. I coughed and coughed and turned blue and got sick. And, you know, I never did that again. She, in her wisdom, that was the best way to handle that, I think. Mm. But that was the end of the story. Mm. Then I had to walk next door with what was left and knock on the door and say, hey, I stole these out of your car or your friend that's visiting here. And it was a lady and she said, oh, okay, thank you. I'm sorry about that. And so it was a couple lessons there, you know, don't yeah. steal. And, and if you're going to smoke, smoke right. Smoke the right way. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other lessons like that that your mom taught you in that same full of wisdom way that have stuck with you? Yeah. Well, was the other story I was going to tell him may be kind of related. I had a friend named Jack Snyder in about third grade. We, he lived up the street, on the next street over, and we'd walk home every day. And in Glendale, every so often on a corner was a fire alarm. It was red. It was probably it was up on a pole, solid there. And if there was a fire, you came out, you lifted this little latch, and you, you pulled the thing down, and it went off. You couldn't hear it. And so for, I bet for a couple of years, we'd walk by and we'd look at this thing, open it up and look at it. I said, Jack, why don't you pull that thing? No, why don't you? <laughs> anyway, one day I pulled it. And he took off running up the street. I took off over my way. Man, I was as nervous as could be. I, I didn't hear anything, but I figured something had to happen. Well, probably 10 minutes later, there's a, a knock on the door. The front door goes, faces this way. People can't, they've listened, can't see that. But over the side of the window where you can look out and see the driveway. So I got up and looked out this window, and there's a, a, a fire vehicle that said fire chief on it. And there in the back seat is my friend Jack Snyder. <laughs> so 
they caught him running up the street, apparently, and said, who did this? I'll take you to his house. So needless to <laughs> say, we weren't friends anymore, although we went through high school together. I was hiding behind the couch. My mom answered the door, what's happening? Well, I think your son may have pulled the fire alarm. Jimmy, come here. What's going on? So, you know, she didn't yell or scream. She said, what do we need to do, Chief? Well, have him come down to the fire station. I want him to see what happens when he pulled mm -hmm. the fire alarm. So, you know, she wasn't, again, yelling or screaming. She never really did. Took us down there. Set a time to go down. When you pull it, there's a big board. It kind of gives a location. And it got a chance to put on fire boots and stuff and even slide down the pole. Hmm. You know, kind of show. So it was a false alarm. They put this stuff on. They run to a fire. There's nothing there. They spent time, manpower, probably risked their lives even moving so fast. So, mm -hmm. you know, I learned something that way also. Those things, those fire alarms aren't there anymore in the corners. Of town, I say. <laughs> probably enough punk kids. Yeah, I'm did sure that. I wasn't the only one. <laughs> yeah, they probably had a pretty good routine down. Hey, why don't you come down and we'll show you what happens when this happens. And probably a lot of people learned a lesson from that. Yeah, I, I learned to appreciate uh, those first responders in the fire department after that. How has that manner of discipline, I guess, yeah. or love, um, affected the way that you've parented? I think as you look back and you say, okay, your mom and dad handled it this way, that was the right way. You know, I think if you uh, start spanking, yelling, screaming, that doesn't, that may have a, an effect to keep you quiet for a while, but at some point it affects your kids and uh, not wanting to discipline that way and also almost becoming rebellious, I think. And so in our life, we've tried to do that too. Hey, let's, you know, this probably is right. Let me even maybe read some scriptures, touch on some things that people have said about certain areas and discipline that way. And I think it's been much more effective. Do you have any specific experiences, and you don't need to name names to, to, to call out any of your kids, where something you know similar happened where you had the opportunity to put that into practice? Well, yeah, I'm trying to think about some. You know, people have always asked me about, boy, how did you get through all those teenagers? Because we had quite a few at a time, and that was, that was the most fun time of our life, I think. You know, the challenge seemed to be, when they were younger, the physical needs. Teenagers were all like you, really good kids and did good things for the most part. You know, a lot of things we didn't hear about until they got older and married. I did think on most occasions, we call, here's what we kept trying to keep in mind with our kids. It doesn't matter if you lose the battle sometimes, you want to win the war. And that's what we were always looking at, long, trying to keep the long picture in mind, far out, how they're going to become and act as adults and what they're going to do. So if we lost the battle, that was okay with us. But we always tried to sit down and talk about why this may not be right, what effect this may have on you and others, and try and uh, appeal to their common sense and have the Holy Ghost kind of speak to them too, so, mm -hmm. so they would know that what's right and wrong. That uh, battle and war thing um, resonates with me. My wife and I, when we have a situation with one of our kids where it's like, okay, we've got some rebelliousness happening here, how do we want to address this? She'll often say, is this a hill that we're willing to die on? That's a great line. If it is, we'll charge up that hill and we'll hit it head on. If not, we'll figure out this hill we're going to lose. You know, whatever that principle or, or action or whatever it is. But we're going to reinforce things so that the next hill we can hit before it becomes a major problem. Well, I think one of the things you always deal with as teenagers, and we certainly did, was probably curfews. You know, that, that's, a, that's a battle, but I'm not sure that's quite the war. You know, if you have a 12 o'clock curfew and they come in at 12.30, is it worth battling over to lose 
the love and respect to your kids. And I think that happens a little bit at a time sometimes. Mm -hmm. So for us, that wasn't, you know, hey, let's do better the next time. Or if you're going to be late, give us a call, tell us what's going on. And that started to happen. That was a lot better than losing the war because the battle wasn't that big of a deal. Pick your battles and your, you know what the war is, where you want to be, but you got to pick the battles and what's going to make sense to go all out to defend yourself. So I want to kind of jump back again a little bit. <clears throat> You, you talked about how basketball was a, a big part of your youth and growing up and, and really into adulthood. You were yeah, a basketball coach for me for a yeah, long was, time for church yeah, basketball. Yeah, that's so. right. I loved it. It was a great game. Just kind of grew up with it and never got rid of it. What types of life lessons can you pull from basketball and have you pulled from basketball and put into your life? Yeah, you know, but really because it's a team sport. It wasn't an individual. You may have a good game. You get praise and accolades, but it was really a team sport, and I think that is what life's all about. You know, you try and do your best as an individual, but the family's a team, the community's a team. You got to work together and do your part. When you do that, it all works together. It's almost like President Uchtdorf talking about, you know, stand in place and lift together. You know, mm -hmm. you get a lot more strength and power that way by doing that. And so, I don't know if I would have ever had those same feelings if I would have been an individual tennis player, let's say. You know, when I was a junior, we had some older guys and just a great team. We almost won the whole, what's known as CIF in California, came pretty close. And next year, they were gone. So we ended up 3-18 uh, and 18 compared mm. to the year before being 18-3. and three. Mm. But it's still a team. And so mm -hmm. I think that was a good example right there saying, hey, you know, we're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but together we're going to do it. We are going to do it together. You know, we're going to win or lose and then comfort each other along the way and say, let's do better next time. And I think that applies to, to life, to a family. And I think you touched on it there, but what did that do to your personal psyche or drive when one year you're 18 and 3 and almost win the championship to the next year when you're 3 and 18? And that that's your senior year when yeah, you're 3 and 18. Yeah, right, exactly. So, so how, how did that affect you? We None of us like like to lose, but I think... For me, it drove home, and I think it's a true principle. The whole principle is you do your best no matter what because you know it's going to change. You know you know it's going to get better. For us, it wasn't going to be any worse, but we were all stuck together. That was a great thing. We are all building each other up. It could be a player from day to day and from time to time was different, but we all build each other up and say, let's do better the next game. And Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't, but that was a great life lesson because you're going to get knocked down in life and you just got to get back up and do it knowing that it's going to get better at some point. So in your life outside of basketball, have you ever felt knocked down and had to rely on that it's going to get better? And then, before you answer that, and that it's going to get better at some point didn't happen for a long, long oh, yeah. time. Tell me a little bit about something like yeah, that. Yeah, a couple of those have both really been had to do with job losses. Companies growing and in other parts of the country, and they're going to close down your operation. So, I mean, there was time as long as a year that I was out of a job. And so you say it's got to get better, but it's just, you know, that's really, for us at least, for me, it was when you really rely on the Lord. I mean, you tried to serve what you were called, tried to seek inspiration, and knowing that, again, it was going to get better. You know, the other one was probably when my brother died, 43 years old, you know, he's just kind of in the prime of life and just fight through it and knowing that the whole plan is in effect, that's the way it's supposed to work. Sometimes it doesn't always make you feel at the time, the loss is great, but you know the whole plan is in place and it's going to work. 
And so you just keep going and try and teach it to your own children and to other people along the way. And you know, and then that whole thing really applies to missionary work. I mean, you've been on mm-hmm. a mission probably a lot tougher than mine. I was in the Western states, doesn't even exist anymore. Colorado and New Mexico and parts of Texas and Kansas and Nebraska. But you know, when you're knocking on those doors, you know, out and around trying to do some good things and tell people about Jesus Christ, there's really ups and downs and a lot of downs. And so, mm-hmm. for me, the basketball really helped in that situation. You know, as a missionary. Uh, to know that it was going to get better, and it did, from time to time. But it, uh, that's pure up and down, you know, just it's exactly like life. Have there been any? I mean, you shared about the job loss. You shared about the the death of your brother. Have there been times where it's gone on for years, or maybe even now, you're like, it's going to get better at some point. Gone on and on and went. It's going to get. It's got to get better. It's got to get better. <laughs> Well, again, that one time with the job loss was it was about a year. That seemed like forever at the at the time. Tell me a little bit about that. What was the industry you were in, and what what was your efforts during that year? I was working for an insurance agency actually as a sales manager, and they decided to to cut back. And I was thought, okay, I guess I'll do some things on my own, and that didn't work out so well. And so for that, I was just it really humbled you. You know, I probably fasted a lot more, went to the temple most every day and just kept talking to people I knew, sending out resumes, and that just kept going on and on. And I think uh, most of that probably had to do with the Lord saying, okay, you know, it's going to happen, but you're going to have to do the work and put in the work to, to make it happen. And I think that happens a lot in our lives, but the time frame sometimes depends on us. For me, things I needed to learn about being humble, knowing that the Lord was in charge, we can make things happen, really depended on on me and what I was doing in our family. So as, as that approximate year came to an end, tell me about what that transition looked like and how the uh, It's Gotta Get Better got better. Oh, well, thank goodness. You know, I was sending out resumes and talking to people and actually ended up going with an insurance company that was doing medical malpractice insurance for doctors and in hospitals over in California, and it was a good job, except that I was traveling to California a lot, and uh, you know, it lasted two years and three months till we came back over here, and the Lord's hand was in that also, but it was a good job, and we made things happen, and I traveled a little bit, but the Lord was in charge, and that's where he wanted us at that time. We learned a few things along the lines there, too, you know, about being away from home and, uh, and wanting to get back, and uh, that all happened, so... Anyway, it all boiled down to keeping it utmost in your mind, who's in charge of this whole thing, and uh, doing what you felt like you ought to do from day to day and from time to time. Do you have or have you had a mentor or multiple mentors who have kind of helped guide you in, in yeah. times of trial? You know, it's interesting you asked that. I was just thinking about that the other day. About the time that I turned 16, there was a young man, and I thought he was old at the time, a young man came into our ward, that had just graduated from law school. So I thought he was an old man, but in reality, he'd been on a mission. He was probably 25 or six or seven. And uh, he was called to be the priest quorum advisor. His name was John Harmer. He was unlike any other priest quorum advisor we'd had before I just come in there, but I I knew the other one. He said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna put together an IP book, instant preparation book. And he went to the parent, to our parents, and said, 
I'm not going to give it to them. You have to have your son earn some money to, to buy this. And I still got it today. So every lesson that he gave, and they were magnificent lessons, he had them typed up. You got to remember this was before 1962, three or four, before computers. So he typed these up and he mimeographed them again before the, the printers and had them put those in the IP book. The IP book was A to Z. So if the lesson was on the apostasy, one under A. And he told us, he said, I'm trying to prepare you to serve missions to have this available to you. And I took it in the mission field. So for two years, I put those lessons, you know, under A or B or Z, wherever they needed to go, and took it with us. And he was great. He ended up running uh, against a state assembly in our district that had been there 20 years and beat him. Hmm. You know, just, for, just again, another example just of hard work and perseverance. He later became the lieutenant governor of Ronald Reagan in California. Oh. Yeah, he was a great he was a great example church wise of not only church wise but again how to persevere and how to keep going after a goal and not giving up. But he prepared us like no other priest corps advisor had, I don't think. Hmm. You said you still have that IP book, yeah, yeah. huh? Is that something that you have referred back to? when giving talks or anything like that, or you just have it as a... Yeah, you know, I've, a couple of times. I haven't used it as much the last 15 years just because of computers and the talks that are available. Right. Unless I may be in the other room. I, no, I still got it somewhere. So of those lessons or topics within your IP book, which one or ones do you think you've referred back to most often that you exactly. recall? Yeah. Yeah. Probably the one on the restoration because I took it in the mission field. You know, the apostasy and the restoration, in fact, you know, this, again, I mentioned that I grew up with Tad Collister, he was a good friend of mine. He's written a couple books, The Infinite Atonement being one. The one I'm reading now is The Blueprint of Christ Church. He gave a talk on that in 2014 at CS Fireside, which is just an amazing book. But he also wrote this in between, The Inevitable Apostasy and the Promised Restoration. And so, you know, in the mission field, you're talking a lot about the apostasy, and then about the restoration through the prophet Joseph Smith. So I probably referred back to that one more than any other one that was given in the priest quorum by John Armour. So you mentioned a few books here. What is one spiritual book that has had the most effect in your life, and what is a conventional book that has had the most influence? Yeah, in your you know, life? I probably, you know, I've probably read more of the church books about prophets and about leadership more than anything else. I mean, especially now that I'm a little bit older, you know. Uh, and certainly I've read the scriptures and the Book of Mormon plenty of times and continue to do so because the, the Book of Mormon is written for our day and, and I'm trying to apply it to our day. The other books, I don't know if I can name them by name, but it really have to do more with leadership in the business world a little bit more doing that and sales. What are some principles maybe from those business sales or leadership books that you have strived to apply in your own leadership business yeah. and sales? And I think when it comes to leadership or sales, you've, you've got to walk the walk yourself, you know. If you're asking someone else to do that and you're not doing it, it just doesn't have the effect. And that's probably mm -hmm. the thing I've learned the most. You know, if I was a sales manager or a branch manager, you know, you've got to be doing the things that you're asking them to do, too. Else, yeah, they're just, just words that don't mean much to them. Yeah, much like the this know and do principle that I'm developing here. If you know something, if you don't do anything about it, it's not doing yourself or anybody else any good because that cognitive dissonance will 
show. <laughs> That's a great name of your podcast because that is so true. I, I think a lot about us as members of the church talking about a testimony you know, but unless you do something about it and to move forward in a positive way to act on it, it doesn't mean much. That goes in line really with uh, Elder David Bednar has talked about a couple times. You know, the difference between acted and acted upon, act and acted upon. You know, we've got to act and move forward the way we feel through the Holy Ghost, hopefully, or through your, through your conscience, whatever you want to call it, to move in a positive way and not just sit back and wait to be acted upon because that's not going to be where you, where you want to be most likely. Do you have a mantra or a motto to your own life, to your own family, that you strive to refer back to or repeat often in your personal or family life? In fact, we just talked about it last night. Michelle and I, we went to a grandson's basketball game. And the, the mantra, especially for the boys, was always, a good boy is a tired boy. <laughs> you know, you, people think, oh, you got him involved with basketball just because you were a basketball player. Well, we got him involved with basketball and with baseball and with everything else to keep him tired so there wasn't time to do bad things, mm. you know. And uh, that was always the mantra for the for the girls and the boys. I mean, they were involved with plays at school and singing and orchestra and, you know, a good boy or, or, or a good girl got to be tired. You mm. know, when they come home, they do a little homework, then they're off to bed instead of out with friends till all hours. Mm. Yeah. From the perspective of Michelle and I, first for me and then for Michelle and us to, together was follow the prophet, do what he says. You know, act and do and not just know. You can't go wrong that way. So what are some things that Michelle has brought into your marriage and your family that would have been sorely lacking if it was just you trying to, to do things on your own? <laughs> she's, brought, she's brought most of it. You know, she came from a family that her dad was a patriarch, you know, bishop for seven years there, but her grandfather, Alma Davis, was a patriarch too. And so she brought in a little more of a, a calmness and let's look at the situation and let's pray about it and let's ask a few other people that we respect and, and know about how this could be handled. And then a calmness probably that uh, I didn't have it came in handy along the way with all the kids. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it sounds like from what you shared with your own mother, kind of being a calming and wise disciplinarian, you kind of found something similar in that. Well, that, yeah, that's exactly right. She's well-grounded, you know, smart as can be, and served in her own right, accomplished in serving in the church and in whatever she's asked to do. She may be a little scared like we all are, but she does it and thinks about it and prays about it and then just moves in that direction. It seems to work out. You mentioned, uh, you know, might be a little bit scared, and we all are. What is something that you have had fear about in your life and that you've been able to maybe not overcome the fear but be able to step back and see it for what it really is and what difference did that make? You know for me it really all all boils back to being a missionary. You may not even know this. I mean I was 20 and a half when I went to the mission field. My parents didn't really care if I went on a mission. Mm -hmm. You know I just I was, spent the first two years at BYU. After that second year kind of felt like gee, I need to go on a mission. I was a little scared about that, never reading the scriptures in our home, mm. never having home evening, 
I mean, I think I read the Book of Mormon just before I went on the mission field. But that, that kind of set a foundation to me, and I think it probably does for, can for all young men and all young women, set a foundation of, of how you're going to act, not react, you know, on the mission field about knocking on doors, about meeting people. I've been involved with business developments and sales you know, ever since then. Yeah, you still get a little scared talking to people, but you just do those hard things and they just uh, they seem to work out. So just kind of press forward through some of those fears. I know that I've, I've had times in my life where I felt almost frozen because of the unknown. And it took a while to be able to take that step of faith, the mm-hmm. proverbial leap of faith. I always picture one of the Indiana Jones movies where he has to cross over this chasm and it's an invisible bridge basically. Oh, yes. And he has to take that step out there and fall and land on it to take that step of faith. Do you have any experiences like that where you're taking this step out into almost what looks like nothing and then you you catch and you've got this, all of a sudden the, the road appears before you? I probably do. I mean, I, I should tell you that I ran for student office in 7th, 8th, and ninth grade told junior high and never won. I mean, mm. I guess I was, I don't know if it's smart enough to work, or dumb enough maybe to, <laughs> to want to do a little better speaking in front of people and, and mm. accomplishing something. Again, I never never won. I don't think I won anything until I was ran for senior class vice president, which I, I was. But mm. even today, maybe the mantra I use is, okay, I got something hard before me, but I say, by tonight when I get home, It'll all be behind me. I just say, okay, well, this is going to end. You know, if I have to go meet somebody I don't want to meet or there's, there's bad news you've got to deliver, I'll mm-hmm. say, okay, by tonight, this is all going to be behind me and I'll be a better person. I think just, you know, especially when you're involved with sales like I have been in business development, it's just every day is kind of a new day and it's ahead of you. You just have to have faith and you talk to yourself and say, okay, you know, I'm going to get something started today that's going to be valuable, worthwhile that I can use, you know, it might be monetarily, it might be something else, or at least some experience I can use later. And you just tell yourself that every day. Do you find yourself, because of these experiences, being able to live more in the present than dwelling on what we don't know is going to happen in the future? You know, it's funny, I almost, you put it in a different way, but it's just what I was thinking about the other day, and I go to work now, not concerned too much about it. Hey, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, I'm just going to do the best I can, the Lord's in charge, you know, I'll call people, I'll talk people, I'll go see people, it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, it used to bother me, oh gee, I wish I would have got this account or that or that, and I just kind of move along and say, hey, it's either good for your growth or it's good for something. When do you think that shift happened from, oh, I'm really worried about if this is going to go through or not, to uh, I'll learn something from it, you know, whether or not it goes through? Well, it may seem funny, but it's, it seems like when I turned 70 to retire, <laughs> it worked pretty well. <laughs> you know, just, just recently, you know, I mean, I, I think I always worried about it up to then. I was working full time and trying to take care of family, but 70 and just putting everything behind me and going on a mission. It was just Michelle and I, and mm-hmm. you still rely on the Lord making things happen, but it wasn't the financial part of it as, as much as it was when you're younger. You, mm. know, you always worry about that, and you're always, always, always busy uh, with work and church and, and family. It's just you wonder how all the hours in the day come to pass for you, how you yeah. live through it. Yeah, I don't think it was until the last two or three years, actually, Justin, I've got to tell you. 
you know, it's just kind of that way for me anyway. Well, I guess I got a little ways to go to, well, to be able to do well, that. Well, everybody's different. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you may be, everybody's makeup is a little bit different in the psychology of it all. You may be fine. It was just me. So you've mentioned the mission that you and Michelle served in Maine. Machias, Maine. So tell me a little bit about what made you decide to do that, and then tell me a little bit about the mission itself and some lessons you learned and took away from that. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. You know, we've been, I mean, I served a mission as a young man, and uh, you know, I thought, okay, Michelle probably will have that opportunity too. So we've talked about it for years. I mean, you know, May of 20. 20, we've been married 50 years, so it's been, we've been talking about it for a long time. So, like I said, I retired March of 2016. We'd already started the process, the paperwork, long before that. March 4th, I retired. March 3rd, I turned 70. April 6th, we're in the MTC, you know, in Provo, Utah. I've been in contact with the, with the mission president, and he says, okay, I've talked to the five stake presidents. There was five stakes in the New Hampshire-Manchester mission, which was New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. The greatest need is in Machias, Maine, so that's where I'm going to send you. So we drove the five or six days back there with a car full, everything, hardly see out the windows, you know. Back to this little town, Machias, Maine, about 2,200 people. Uh, it used to be 10,000. It was a fishing, lobstering town, you know, things had slowed down and a small little town. But there was a little branch there called the Machias branch. The first Sunday we were, we were there, we got a little triplex apartment. It wasn't really built to be an apartment, it was where we were, just almost next door to the church. There was elders on the other side. The church was not a church building, a typical church building. They bought it, it was an old department economic security building. And so we went there and there were 17 people there. The branch president had a full beard and a ponytail. Awesome. It was just a great guy. He had, awesome. come from, he had just moved there from Arkansas found this house out in another little part of Maine uh, that was in the branch boundaries and called him to be the branch president. The first counselor had been a branch president two or three times before, had joined the church 40 years ago, had the elders over every night for dinner for 40 years on Friday. Just great, great people. Anyway, there were 17 people there. But then we got a, ended up getting a branch directory, which took a while to get, but there was a good 60 or 70 that weren't active, probably, at least. And so we determined that we were just going to start going out and meeting these people, tell them who we are and what we're doing. After a month or two, Michelle, I think, got a little discouraged. She was praying one night and said, go count the chairs in the chapel. They weren't pews, they were chairs, you know, soft seat. There was, and the next morning we went over, there was 55 of them. So over the course of the next 18 months, and I should say after nine months, the new mission president said, what do you think? Do you want to stay or want to stay? They're just starting to, to like us, you know, understand us and know that we're around and we're serious about this. So we stayed the whole time in, in Machias, Maine. If we went, would have started all over. Didn't want to go to a ward anyway. It was called the Machias Branch, but there was a good circumference of 40, 40 minutes around that was part of the branch. So it wasn't just Machias. Hardly anybody was in Machias who would actually remember that branch. So we saw, you saw it was 17, and then after a month and a half, we saw 22 or 3, and then we saw 25, 27, then we got up into the 30s, you know, and then we saw the 40s. Anyway, October of 2017, general conference, the week before, we were sitting there, and it started to fill up, started to fill up, and then we hear some rally going on that brought in two more chairs. There was 57 people there. 
uh, held 55. I leaned, leaned over to Michelle and said, it's time for us to go home. It was the next week we left, you know, after the Tuesday after General Comfort, so we drove back and we're happy about it. And even today, we, you know, we, I've got a branch director, we've called people on their birthday and talked to them, how's it going? And, you know, we'll be back that way, Boston, and going up to, to Maine in, in May probably to see some of these folks. But mm. the lessons were, you know who the people were, you just go out and visit them. Uh, some of them we saw 18 times every, every month or twice a month. I'm sure they were tired of us, but uh, the other thing that Michelle did that really got us in the door was she had inspiration about, on everybody's birthday, making a cupcake, oversized cupcake, big. Mm. So she'd make these cupcakes, put them in cellophane with a candle, and I don't know how anybody could turn down a cupcake on their birthday. <laughs> and that got us in the more doors and more people started to come out to church than ever before. It was different than the first time as a young man. The elders were out there working away. They were spending a lot of their time helping the widows. That was the other thing. The first Sunday we got there, we were looking around, and there's these widows that were older than I was. And I thought, this branch can't survive too much longer, you know, without some new blood in here. And so we sat down with the elders and said, you know, and you've done a great job here helping these widows and this and that, but let us do that and call on all the inactives, and you go out and drum up business. There hadn't been any baptisms in that branch for eight years. Why we were there was four. Some new blood and some younger people were moved in. So waking up every morning with a positive attitude, let's go see him, let's go talk to him, let's take him a cupcake, let's talk about this event. There had been no events. There was, you know, they were going Sunday to Sunday, you know, and then a couple of baptisms. You had a young man became a scoutmaster. Then you had, you know, three people with their families moved in. You had all this experience. One had been a bishop and... Mm. So he had a young men's president, which and a young women's president, and meet during the week. You know, just all the change. And so he had an event, a dinner, a program, something going on every month, mm. where people weren't just coming on Sunday. They were wanted to be there. And so all that kind of added up with the Lord's inspiration, kind of figuring out what you ought to be doing. That is really neat. How did that change your heart? That experience. Well, I just—I I mean, I already—I already knew it, but I just—it was just re, kind of reconfirmed that the Lord's in charge. Uh, he knows the people that He's had baptized. A lot of them, uh, some in poorest county in Maine, Washington County, where we were. A lot of these people had been baptized because they're living with their grandparents, you know, at eight years old, and never knew anything about the church. And so, mm-hmm. once I got a better feel for it, and knowing that the Lord's in charge and concerned about His children. You know, he just had a great love for him and wanted to, to partake of the, the covenants and the, and the whole gospel plan there. That's really neat. You know, in Scripture, you've got Saul on the road to Tarsus who had this mighty change of heart, this massive experience. You've got Alma the Younger in the Book of Mormon, massive experience. But you've also got examples of, say, Peter, who over time, yes, he said he had this change of heart, but eventually he really had that change of heart that turned him into the man who people lined up on the sides of the streets to have his shadow go by him, you know? Did you see anything like that with the people you worked with on your mission? Yeah, you know, we did. I probably won't, like I say, I won't name names, but Mm -hmm. even individually, a couple of people, one man had come out there, his family stayed behind in Utah, was going to come out for a year. He was involved with a school there head of student life and so forth. Great guy. I'm not sure what his background was either. He, he was out almost every week, but he was gone in the second, third hour, you know, for priesthood and Sunday school and stuff. His wife came out, and his kids had been on missions, a couple of them. 
another girl left from the branch in a bunch of Colorado as a mission. He's now the branch president, you know, going strong, keeping things together. But what was almost palatable, I mean, you could, you could taste it almost, was because of the, the new converts and the new blood and the new stuff that was going on, collectively, you could just feel it. I mean, I almost cut it with a knife. Mm. Of the people's enthusiasm about missionary work, about activities, about coming to church, it was, it was just so obvious. It was really amazing. You could see how they felt and the difference in their in their lives. You know, some people came out to, that never came out came to one or two things. One example was a, a girl and her daughter up in Canada. There was a place called Campbell Island. It was a summer home for Roosevelt, hmm. Franklin Roosevelt up there. But it was in our mission. We had two members up there that were inactive. We got to know this mother and her daughter, I mean, divorced, and went and visited them once in, in an older house and kind of run down, pretty negative. We, we kept visiting, kept visiting. She came to church, she came to our apartment for a conference, started to come out, looked quite a ways away, it was a good 35, 40 minutes, with a passport and stuff coming back in and out, it wasn't always easy, but all of a sudden, not quite as, over the 18 months, not quite as negative. Got a real estate license. Start selling a home or two or three or four, and you know, called her on her birthday last time, and she was doing fine. A lot more positive, a lot more enthusiastic about life and things, and that was a, a major change. You saw that in a couple of situations, probably, because, like you say, pretty poor county for the most part. The, a lot of welfare in in Maine. People, young, the men usually, during lobster season, they lobster. Get on a boat, and there's a there's blueberries is big there in Machias, so they're picking blueberries. In the winter time, most of them have trucks, and they all have a, a scraper in the front. So in the winter time, they're scraping driveways. You know, it's not like here where where you live, and probably you you know you live in Washington. They're long dirt roads that go back to these little shacks and homes, and so to scrape them off is a little different. They're earning money doing that, so. A little different than just one job, you know, that, yeah. that pays the bills. They're having a hard time. When you returned, the the congregation that, that you were in and that I spent a lot of my youth in and some of my adult years in, mm-hmm. this the 46th Ward in Mesa, Arizona, is a fantastic ward. But it differs greatly from where you served your mission. Yeah. Tell me some of the things that you missed about here while you're on your mission and some of the things you miss about there while you're here? Well, you know, Mesa, Arizona and the Mesa 46 Ward, I mean, all full-fledged programs in the church are in effect. You know, I mean, you're talking primary and Sunday school and young men, young women, I mean, it's there. Back in this little branch, they called Michelle to be the primary president. One little boy, three years old, I was her counselor. Mm. I wasn't called officially, but I was there for six or eight months. And uh, his father served a mission, joined the church at 18, went on the mission, and then came home and was never active again. This little boy that I had to sit in front of the door with a tin of chair, he, didn't want to, he wanted to go see Daddy, and then he started getting better. Teaching this little guy about the church was great. Where you, in our ward, and maybe your ward, I mean, there's 70, 80, 90, 100 kids in primary. And a family moved in, fell inspired from Farmington, Maine, in, our, in the Bangor Stake. With their six kids, got seven, but six of them came. That added three or four to the primary, you know, a big difference. So this little three-year-old is adjusting to having kids around and, and doing well and making some friends. And, 
Anyway, you see the full programs of the church in effect. I mean, certainly we missed our friends and church was close, but you know, if you visit somebody is a few blocks away, there you're getting in your car. We put over 50,000 miles on the car in 18 months, driving a lot, you know. So that was important. And those people that live there, almost everybody had been born and raised there, or close by, didn't understand what a big word was like. You go to a stake meeting, a stake conference, it's just like being here. It was great. You know, Bangor's a active place and all the wards and stuff, but in this little town it wasn't the same. Mm. We missed the people was the main thing. You know, we were glad to be involved teaching uh, Wednesday night Book of Mormon class, visiting the people and watching them give talks. One sister was our chorister. In the first few months we were there, it was the pink rabbit shoes that she wore to church and pajamas. It was so fun to see her and uh, as the branch grew and as we visited with her, it had nothing to do with us, but the slippers are gone, the pajamas are gone, instead of a Looney Tune t-shirt that she wore once in a while, and we had more of a blouse that she had, and of course dress is not the, not the biggest part of being mm-hmm. a member of the church right. and doing what you what you should, but you could see the outward appearance changing a little bit because the inward had. And I love how you said that. Some of the favorite people that I have worked with within the church and within society as a whole are people who don't fit the mold of what you and I may consider a standard member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or a standard person. And I love talking with and and working with those types of people. You mentioned the branch president there with the long hair and the, the beard and the long hair. I love that. And the reason why I love it is because for the most part, they're authentic. They're not just trying to put out this, hey, look at me, I'm perfect, whatever. Hey, look at me, I have flaws, I have warts, but I'm still trying to do the best I can. He said that all the time. I mean, he was down to earth, but boy, talk about loving and kind. I mean, he was he was that way. From a young childhood running for office and never winning, I thought, you know, trying to improve yourself. I mean, I got involved with the community a lot, you know, as, as a member of Rotary, sat on uh, the... City of Mesa Development Board for two terms, six years, one as president. That was fun. And there you visit a lot of people that certainly aren't of our faith. Mm-hmm. And there are so many good people, you know, willing to serve and serving and wanting to serve that aren't members of our church. Doing those kind of things and member of the United Way Board. Just so nice to see all these good people want to make their community stronger. And it's not any different than a family. You want to make it strong. And, and Mesa's that that way and that's because people a lot of people willing to serve um any other words of wisdom that you want to share with me and you know future people that hear this uh, everybody's different but probably the the mantra that uh, makes sense to me is, is do what is right let the consequence follow and don't be worried about the consequences the lord has a plan for everyone he loves all his children he wants the best for them and whether you believe in a Holy Ghost or our conscience, it's there to, to help us make good decisions. So you just do the best you can, and good things always seem to happen. And the road is not always level with uh, no stumbling blocks. It's always rocky, uphill and downhill. And if you keep the attitude that uh, all works out, and somebody is in charge and loves us, then those rocks are a little smaller than you might think they are at the, at the time. Do what is right, let the consequence follow, 
it's going to get better. Yeah, it's going to get better. And by tonight when I get home, it'll all be behind me and I'll be a better person. You know, I still use that today. I mean, I did the other day with the bank was doing videos. Our marketing, weren't employees, but somebody we hire that wanted to put videos on our webpage. And there was four of us that had to do 30 minutes about loans and stuff. And I thought, oh man, I don't want to do that. But I mean, I use that saying, okay, by the end of the day, I'll be home. And I won't have to worry about talking to a bunch of cameras and talking on a video, you know. So all of those little mantras that you shared there, they all have to do with getting to work, pushing through things. Well, well the whole idea and concept and name of your podcast. Yeah, that's exactly right. No one do. I mean, uh, and President Hinckley was that way. The more you jump into it and get to work, you know, the easier it becomes. Is there anything else, any experiences that maybe we didn't touch on that you thought, oh, I'd like to share this, or anything else before we close up here? One of the main things for me, I was, even though my parents were great and wonderful and weren't real active in the church, it was so great to have good friends. To me, uh, that's imperative for kids, and I think that's important. You know, I talk about Ted Collister. I mean, we kept in touch over the years, and it was in December. He had a 50th wedding anniversary, so Michelle and I went up there to this 150 people in, in uh, Joseph Smith's Memorial Building. They put us at a table. They were organized enough. Six or seven kids organized it, and a table of Glendale people from the Glendale West Ward. I talked about mm -hmm. going up there, mm -hmm. and there was... Gordon Christensen and John Christensen and uh, Ron Beach, three guys uh, that I knew, and hadn't some I hadn't seen for 50 years, and listened mm -hmm. to their lives. And great example of what we've been talking about, putting their f one foot in front of the other, doing things, been on missions, served in the church, worked with their family to try and do good things. And I, I, it's, no matter how tough it gets, it's that concept of, act and not be acted upon and put one foot in front of the other, I think. So one more question before we close sure. up. Is there a passage of scripture or an individual in scripture, or a scripture story, I guess, that you identify with and strive to either reflect or really see yourself in? There's Alma 22, 23 and 25. I mean, I think we're all familiar with Ammon. And King Lamoni, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I probably a good two or three years ago, I, I don't know how many times I read this, but finally it made sense to me and it kind of jumped off the page. Probably more so today because of, in our church, the home teaching program being pushed aside, mm -hmm. in effect, and ministering. If you read Alma 22, 23, you may recall that Aaron goes and meets with the king, the king over all the land. And as happened to Lamoni, the king of the land kind of falls to the ground and kind of becomes like he's dead and things are going on in the background. But then there comes a point where the queen kind of says, hey, what, what are you doing? You killed my husband. Servants, go get uh, the townspeople to come in. Mm -hmm. And as you read a little closer, you realize that Aaron had to raise the king and what caught me was it said the, the king ministered under them and they were converted. Ministering, converted. So there's an equation there. The, the townspeople came in and it said the king administered to them and they were pacified. 
Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe when you minister to people, just rules and regulations, and maybe they get pacified. But when you minister to people, there's conversion. Mm. And that, that really stood out to me, I think, that I've thought about and used in my life for the last three years more than anything else. I probably read that hundred times, I guess. So define for me the difference between administering and ministering in your words. Yeah, I, I think when you administer, there's certain things that need to be done, certain obligations and duties you have, and you may not give any thought to it. It's got to be done, you administer it, you go do it, it's black and white, and it, it's got to it's get done, and it does get done. A good example might be the old Hope Teaching Program. Hey, it's got to get done by the end of the month. You go visit them, you give them a lesson, and you're out the door. When you minister to that same family, you think about them, you pray over them, uh, you get to know them better, see what their needs are. It may be more than one visit, one text, one email. May, you may go to a game, a concert. You know, you minister to them and more concerned about their lives and how it's going to affect them and their family and try and help them probably more than just mm. the ministering part of doing your obligation. Mm. You know, I think you get involved with their lives and try and get to know them and do, and do better and see that they're trying to do good things and help them in that direction. So how has ministering brought you closer to the Savior? I think service is always the, the, the key. I think when you... When you're in the service of your fellow man, you're always only in the service of your God, and that's ministering. I think, you know, when and you get closer to God by by being a servant and a minister more than just administering a program. I think ministering the things that got to be done in the, in the church and in life. I realize that, but ministering, I guess, is taking an interest, being more concerned with with people, and that's uh, that makes you more like the Savior. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, and that perhaps you were inspired to become a bit of a better person because of it. Once again, if you know anyone, or are anyone, that would love to share experiences of life in a long-form conversation, please send me an email at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com. As always, my experience is that wisdom and peace in this life come from knowing the Savior Jesus Christ and doing as He would have me do. 